0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been
1: given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They were misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. And they were basically like monsters created to fail. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues, and you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay? As we go through this coaching corner, uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook. A hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a um, you know a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or, or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight, but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them, and I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them. And I I want them I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times, I'll ask somebody a question, and they're like, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that." Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach. But you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it. I can surmise. But you're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them. But that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, One reason that that's important too is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and – let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's – I mean it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son i don't know everything about what's going on here, so be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was the same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right, so you know, just use some questions like you know what i don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but you know it sounds like you're really considering it um. But before I answer this, can I ask a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help them by just asking the question, what are your goals? It allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what, what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them. Right? Because... And push with questions and let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So first step, understand their answers and hooks are in, themse- in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, A lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear him saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were – to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just – basically paraphrase what they just told me, and I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just – I want – I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard, but then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it, I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about and by not taking a position then they don't have to like you know retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on then another rule i like to use is i point out their inconsistencies so it sounds like you're worried about your son and you know and his grades and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son is that, what you're, is that what you're feeling? this That's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on and you're concerned it's not a great idea. <laughs> Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you – You really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard and you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that and then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, It's it's pretty interesting stuff. And so – Point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a, kind of a radio TV personality is People actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the total outstanding student loan debt in the United States is $1.2 trillion which is the second highest level of consumer debt behind only mortgages. Most of that is loans held by the federal government. About 40 million Americans hold student loans, and about 70% of bachelor's degree recipients graduate with debt. With these numbers only seeming to increase and tuition rates uh, continuing to rise, it seems that there are very few ways left for a college student to pay for their degree. Marty Allenbaugh, a financial senior marketer and certified financial planner for T. Rowe Price Group, uh, joins us today to talk about why parents have to put their retirement off to help uh, their children pay for college. Marty, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Matt. It's great being on online with you. You bet. And this, I mean, uh, parents have to stop their retirement programs and, and the paying for retirement in order to pay for their college for their children. Is that, is that a good exchange? We, we we feel that that's not a good good exchange,
2: yeah. Dr. Matt. Uh, you know, and so we have our we do our annual parents, kids, and money survey with uh, with with parents uh, who have children between ages of eight to fourteen and their kids. And we did find some uh, alarming results with that survey concerning parents stopping contributing to their retirement plans.
0: Talk about what you learned. What, like, what percentage of parents are, are actually stopping retirement planning and, and payment for their retirement in order to take care of the kids? He unfortunately, we found that 69% of the parents in our survey, we've been doing the survey
2: for eight years, responded, because my kids will go to college before I retire, I feel I should put money towards that first and save for retirement later. Huh. So it was a, an alarming number. And then we asked them, which of the following do you have? 57%, which is great, said they have money saved for their kids' college education, but only 54% said they have money saved for retirement. Mm. So 46, 46% of the parents in our study don't have a nickel saved for retirement, which is a, a very alarming number if you remember this study, these are not young parents, they have their their oldest is eight or older. Yeah. They're a little farther along the the age range.
0: Is it, I mean, maybe is it, are we as people now just assuming that retirement isn't going to happen? I think
2: think what may be occurring is, uh, and I've, I've experienced this myself, I have a daughter just starting college this year, I have a son just starting high school you you see the children growing in front of you, and you you're like oh my gosh i need I need to start saving for this and and i I need to uh to make that my top priority and uh and and I think some of it's uh, some stress levels we're seeing as well with the parents and and we have uh you know we want to have good news for your listeners that, that there there are some options that they have where they don't have to stop contributing to the retirement plan. I like to cover some of them
0: yeah. some of those with you. In fact let's let's um, let's do that. Is it I, I guess in the end, because if if we're putting a money away for retirement, um, then we really don't pay taxes on that money until we take that money out of the retirement. Can we use the money we're using for retirement and loan it to our kids for school?
2: That is a strategy. We actually wouldn't recommend that. If there's there's better options, Uh, what we would say is uh, to our investors, if they're planning on delaying retirement, we're okay with that. Uh, We're not. It's not ideal. Ideal, but we're okay. Stopping contributions to retirement plan is not okay. Mm. And here's the reasons why. There there are myriad of ways to fund college. There's loans, scholarships, grants. Summer jobs, enlisting in the military, some awesome volunteer programs, Dr. Matt, out there with AmeriCorps and Peace Corps that help pay down your loans, family gifts, and as you know, there's a variety of colleges that come with a variety of price tags. Mm-hmm. With retirement, it's really just your personal savings and Social Security. There's less options available for uh. funding your
0: retirement. So that's uh, the strategy that we kind of so- encourage our clients. Because because there are so many options for school school loans and even I mean grants um, you're saying put, put the onus for sc- paying for school on all of those other sources and instead keep your retirement funded.
2: We're hoping you can do both and at least put uh, some money away uh, for for your for your children's college expenses, but not sacrificing everything. Uh, so in your retirement to fully fund it. Hmm. I mean, so what's, for example, we had like fifty percent of the parents in our study said, if I pay for my kids' college, I expect them to help me in retirement. Yeah. And uh, I know for for our family, we want our daughter to be financially independent. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be a burden on her when she graduates from college to help finance our retirement. Uh, so we we think parents should have that same goal. It's, um,
0: it's one of those things, like you were saying, that you, you sometimes don't think about until you have a kid going to school. Then all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, boy, why didn't I plan ahead? But also one of the things that came out of your survey, you mentioned uh, that 42% of parents say they're losing sleep over how to help their kids pay for college compared to 28% in 2014. So this isn't even just a financial issue anymore. This could just be good health issue.
2: It could, and I think Dr. Matt, I think you'll you'll appreciate this. I know you're big in, into communication uh, between parents and kids. We think that's a symptom of a lack of communication that's going on between parents and kids as well. We found in our study, sixty-two percent of kids expect their parents to cover the cost of mm. whatever college they want to go to, while well, only thirty-five percent are willing to cover. Of parents are willing to cover most or all of expenses.
0: Yeah, so we got to talk.
2: Uh, yeah, so they, I think they have to talk, and, and there's some reluctance we're seeing from parents uh, being able to have 71% of parents were reluctant to discuss financial matters with their kids, uh, and 29% were very or extremely reluctant. We think it's really important for parents, and I know you have a lot of listeners here on the yeah. on your show, start having financial conversations with their children starting as young as age five. Mm-hmm. Having those conversations, uh, and we, we have a website called moneyconfidentkids.com that has a, a lot of good information to help parents to have those conversations, uh, starting when they're young, uh, that helps your kids feel more confident, but also you can have discussions about college as well. There's a, I think parents are losing sleep because they're not communicating with their children. There's a big disconnect between what the kids expect and what the parents can do.
0: Oh, yeah. And, I mean, what a great title, too, Money Confident Kids. How many kids go away to college and that's the first time they start having, you know, credit, credit uh, card companies coming after them, trying to lure them to get a credit card started. And a lot of the kids don't have any clue what they're doing at that stage. So if we could get our kids confident and with a plan... I mean, there's amazing self-esteem that uh, that could be you could be benefiting from and growth in self-esteem by by having this covered and and figuring out how you're going to pay for it yourself.
2: And I think that also then would help relieve some of that parent anxiety we're seeing as well. Yeah, which is also really important. You know, T Rowe Price, we're big on investing with confidence, and we want our our parents to be confident as well. Now we do we do encourage them to to save some, you know, to set up an automatic savings plan if they can for their children's college expenses. They can start. We have an example here if we have time, Doctor. Yeah, please, yeah, yeah. um, Start as little as seventy dollars per month, let's say. For example, I know uh, one of your coworkers, Terry. Yeah. Just had a baby daughter. Little baby, yeah, yeah. That's great. Uh, He started uh, right now contributing just seventy dollars a month into an account for her. Uh, assuming a six percent rate of return, who have twenty five thousand dollars accumulated by the time she reaches college at twenty thirty four, which is eight. Holy cow! So twenty five thousand is not bad. Not it's bad at start. all. Uh, you know, uh, at least in today's dollars at, at BYU, that would cover almost two full years of tuition right. and room and board.
0: Well, and, and, and if you had a job, you up. could you could stretch it to three, you know, or four. If you got some scholarships, I mean, that's nothing. Seventy bucks a month. Uh, for 20, how many years were you factoring? 18 years. 18 years at yep.
2: 6%. Uh, now, at the flip side, I've said, nah, I'm not going to start with that. I, and this is just a good start. I, I'm going to instead borrow that $25,000 uh, when Morgan starts uh, college. Mm-hmm. And you assume an 8% loan rate, you're going to end up paying 320 bucks a month for 10 years. And your total payback, including interest, will be $38,000. Wow. So in the in the first example... Uh, we had, uh, you know, uh, Terry. He's only contributing fifteen thousand. He's getting another ten thousand in interest. Yeah. Or if he borrows, he's he's going to have to pay thirty-eight thousand dollars in principal and interest. So there's a there's a trade-off there.
0: Well, that's a great example, though.
2: And, and then Terry can start increasing that amount over yeah. the years. You know, uh, this starting at seventy is a nice start. You know, maybe it goes to hundred a hundred a month a year or two from now and. As his income increases, and then, boy, with our family, we get all these family gifts coming in for uh, for graduations, mm-hmm. different religious events. Taking some of that cash infusion and putting it into a, a college savings plan can really help.
0: Well, and we add a little complexity to this whole matter too, because in our church, we a lot of our kids go on LDS missions where they leave and they go, you know, they go away for two years, but that could be four or five hundred dollars a month to pay for that. So all of a sudden, they're paying for a college education and on top of that, an LDS mission. So they need money. And it also takes them out of the workplace for two years. So this idea, I guess, of planning is its core. And like what I guess what you're saying is, it doesn't you don't have to necessarily do either or if you start early enough,
2: if you start early enough, and we would encourage investors, to not stop contributing to their retirement plan. So if they if they're with an employer that offers an an employer match, at least contribute enough to that 401k plan to get that match, and then look at look to start an automatic uh, contribution amount for your for your college savings.
0: Is so if I put money into I know if I put money into my 401k, that's tax free I guess until I'm able till I need to pull it out. Is that true in education funds?
2: There are some tax benefits with these uh, education plans. The one I'm going to refer to is a a 529 college savings plan. Uh, So, for example, uh, in the state of Utah, you have your Utah educational savings plan. I'm not familiar with that plan, but there's one available uh, for you. There's also a national plan as well. We offer one. The benefits of those 529 savings plans are, they're, they're a lot. They're de- designed specifically, for Dr. Matt, for college uh, education. So you have federal tax benefits, so they, they grow tax deferred. And hmm. if, if you take a distribution for qualified educational expenses, they're tax free. Oh, wow. And, and the qu- qualified educational expenses are pretty liberal in how, in how they define that. Uh, you also have state tax benefits, so that Utah plan does offer some. Income tax benefits. Uh, I believe in you. Told you have a five percent income tax. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, you do some get some protection from that as well. With, wow. Uh, we also loved for for our family the graduate the graduation uh, based portfolios. So for our daughter, she she started college in twenty sixteen. We selected the twenty sixteen fund. Hmm. Most five twenty nine plans offer that. So these portfolios get more and more conservative as you approach that date. Uh, you mentioned uh, for some for some of your callers, your your daughter may may have a year or two delay before she starts college. Mm-hmm. Maybe pick the 2018 fund then because that's, right. uh, that's when she starts college, not 2016. Uh, but those make it really easy to save. Right. Uh, so you have a lot of tax benefits. And a lot of flexibility with these 529
0: plans. I guess that's the key is we just need to uh, to get our heads wrapped around it know what's going on. We'll take a break. We're speaking with Marty Allenbaugh. He is a financial senior marketer and certified financial planner for T. Rowe Price Group. T. Rowe Price Group is a financial planning and investment aiding organization dedicated to helping its customers become more financially independent. We will take a break and uh, come back, continue the discussion. By the way, you can remember, go look up moneyconfidentkids.com, a wonderful uh, resource to help you uh, make sure your kids understand their financial issues as well. We'll continue the discussion, uh, your retirement and your college education for your children. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, today, parents are not uh, putting enough attention towards retirement, and then they get surprised by the, uh, I guess, the, the the need of their children to get a college education. It kind of sneaks up on you. Ironically, you know, the kids have been with you the whole time. <laughs> then bada boom, bada bing, something changes, and you got to figure out how to pay for college education and how to still keep paying for your retirement Joining us on the phone is uh, Marty Allenbaugh, and Marty is a financial senior marketer and a certified financial planner for T. Rowe Price Group. He's talking to us today um, about how to balance this. One of the great resources he just uh, pointed out is a website called MoneyConfidentKids.com, which is um, put out there by T. Rowe Price and it's a, it's a way to help your kids, you know, become confident in in the process of saving, spending, also, though, getting ready for school. And one thing, Marty, you've already told us to do is make sure that we are having a, an open dialogue and communication with our kids about money and about their, their future education.
2: That's right, Dr. Matt. We also, beyond having those conversations, the conversations is the first part, we also... Would encourage parents. It's on this website as well to have money experiences with their kids. Mm. Uh, uh, so, for example, with our children, we have an allowance that that we would have. Some, sometimes it's based on chores. Sometimes it's a weekly allowance, and that's their money to spend. So they not only are you having conversations, you're giving them experience working with money as young as age five. And then the third level was a challenge for us as parents to do this, but allow your children to make some mistakes with money. Mm-hmm. So to maybe purchase something that maybe you don't think they need, and then you remind them when they have something else you want to buy, well, you bought that item two months ago. It's going to take you six months to earn enough money to to purchase this item. Right. Uh, so you allow them to make mistakes, and there's data on that site to show you know, the conversations, the experiences, and even allow your kids to make mistakes can really increase their confidence in how they handle money down the road.
0: By the way, we tied money to um, their cell phones because, you know, with an update on a cell phone, it made it – it changed a little. it's flipped a switch on our iPhones that made it so that they used more Wi-Fi. And we told our kids, make sure you turn that off. Make sure you turn it off. Well, a few of them didn't, and then they had to go to their bank and um, – write a check to our our phone company to pay for the difference of all of their Wi-Fi use. And so I mean money talks, right? Even to kids. It it's it's still it communicates and it's it's a powerful tool. Do you think as parents, we sometimes we either don't teach the lessons or maybe we we intervene too much so the kids aren't learning the lessons we are
2: I think sometimes it's intervening. I know my wife and I had those conversations about Allowing your children to buy something you think they may not may not need. Mm-hmm. I think there's also We, we have a, in our survey We have a lot of parents here who are having some financial challenges and they're reluctant to share those challenges that they're having with their kids Yeah, uh, I know it's tough when they're little but when they're older, I think you need to have those conversations which then brings your kids expectations into reality about how we're going to handle uh, funding this
0: college yeah. expenses. What, what about some parents that just say, no, not doing it? Uh, if kids want to go to college, they've got to pay for it. I had to pay for mine. What what do you think about that?
2: It, it, that could be a, a, a risky uh, proposition, Dr. Matt, because yeah. it, it all comes down to, you know, the, the Financial aid now is, is a federal program. You have the FAFSA, which is a free application for federal student aid. So there's a standardized form you you apply for to, to qualify for an, for financial aid. And the biggest driver for how much aid you'll receive is the actual income the parents have the year before your daughter starts college. Mm. So if your income is is high, you, you may you may not uh, qualify for financial aid. Uh, I'll give you the example. I just ran some numbers. It's the, the the financial aid number is based off your adjusted gross income. Adjusted gross income is after like deductions and personal exemptions, and then it's the range of financial aid uh, is anywhere between 22 to 44 percent of the parents' AGI is used. To calculate this expected family contribution, so if you if we just look at uh, the numbers here for uh, for BYU, uh, if your adjusted gross income is north of sixty thousand dollars, your expected family contribution, even for the conservative number, will be thirteen thousand two hundred per year. That's almost the full cost of going mm. to BYU. So it doesn't take a lot of income for you to not qualify for any financial aid, which means then. Your son or daughter may not have loan options available because your income so high. So you, right. you need to be putting some money away. Your income may may prevent you from from getting that aid.
0: Plus, these again, this is a it's a tangled web, right? And you got to be careful. Just because money is available doesn't mean it should be taken. And they may not fully understand what they're doing with it. So it might be better, like you're saying, coach them, educate them, partner with them. Co-sign with them. Do what you've got to do with them, um, and, and raise them up in knowing how to handle all of this. That's right. I, I agree. Because it's. I mean, it, I know people that have gotten thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in debt, and they don't have an income that will ever, ever deliver that. Yeah.
2: It. it yeah. The, the amount of debt, it's a tricky one. It, it kind of. We we uh, we get questions about what's a reasonable amount of debt. We say it depends on the on the degree and the income potential that's generated from that degree. Mm-hmm. So if you have seventy five thousand dollars loan for an MD or a DDS degree, uh, you could be able to uh, that could be a worthwhile investment. That same debt level, let's say for a Bachelor's of Art in Social Work, you, you may not have the income potential coming in to cover mm. seventy five thousand dollars worth of
0: worth of loans. That's where you need to maybe get into some of these grants or some of the, I mean, if you're going to go work for a nonprofit, the, a lot of times you can find other ways that they they will forgive certain loans, certain debts, certain things like that. So, I mean, I guess part of this is be informed. And if you've got more than one kid, I mean, the, the, any knowledge that you have as a parent can easily help all of the kids. So,
2: yeah, so if you have a family with, with a lot of children, of course, that helps drive down your adjusted gross income. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that th- there's a benefit there. And then if you have multiple kids going to college at the same time, that will really drop your expected family contribution. So yeah. then you factor that in. So if you have three, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have three kids going to college at the same time, th- that will really drop your expected family contribution down so you could quali- qualify for more uh finan- financial aid. Unfortunately, yeah. depending on the school, financial aid may be loans. Yeah right. Uh, with BYU, they they have a very large endowment. It could be more grants, but you, first of all, you have to qualify for it.
0: Mm. Uh, is key. Talk to us, uh, Marty, as we wrap up this segment. What what I always ask for the one thing. What would you say is the one thing that makes the biggest difference when it comes to preparing your kids to to really to get into the whole student loans and and the and to be able to pay for their schooling, um, and and really money management. What's the one thing we should be doing with our children?
2: I I can't overstate the importance, Dr. Matt, of having those regular money conversations with your kids. Uh, You know, weekly is recommended. You know, we're big believers at T. Price and the power of compounding. So a simple investment of a small amount of time and money, if if it comes to allowance, can go a long way. Uh, and then to visit that MoneyConfidentKids.com website mm. for, for more information. For example, there's a, there's a great uh, game on that site, too, called Starbanks Adventure. Mm. Uh, it's a mobile app game for kids to play. It's free. We've had almost 400,000 people uh, visit the site and play that game. Uh, and it's a way for kids to learn while playing the game about different financial concepts. But a big on we're big on the conversations, and it helps all the other issues we talked about here.
0: Love it, love it. Stress and everything else. We appreciate it, Marty. Really, truly, that is um, great advice. The website, again, Money Confident Kids, uh, Marty Allen Vaz's is name. And if you go to Money Confident Kids, you can play the games. You can learn how to have these money meetings with your family and your kids. Start communicating about money. It's not going away. In fact, it seems like it's only going to get more stressful if they aren't informed. So stick with us. You're listening
3: to the best of the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Welcome back, friends. You know, there's always a point in our lives where we need feedback or we need to give feedback. And it's a difficult thing to do, especially when we don't, you know, you don't want to offend somebody. You don't want to turn someone off. You care about them. You want them to grow, but they need to get some feedback. So... Joining us today is Kim Giles. She's the president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching, popular life coach, uh, author and speaker, and was named as one of the top 20 advice gurus in the country by Good Morning America. Um, we uh, we love having her on the show. Kim, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Matt. Excited to be here, as, Let, as always.
0: As always. Let's talk about feedback. Um, it's Again, it gets into kind of one of those territories that you talk a lot about where there's there's a lot of fear. We are afraid to, to, to talk to people about the hard stuff.
1: So I've actually got about six steps that I, I have a client kind of think through to sort of find this middle way place. Hmm. So the first one is to get very clear about the infinite, absolute, and equal value of all human beings. And, and what I mean is going into a, a feedback conversation, we sometimes have a tendency to talk down to this person that did something wrong that we now have to give feedback to. And, and we're kind of coming from a position of being above them or more valuable, more important. And, and so the conversation starts out as one where you're talking down in an insulting way to this other person. And whenever we start a conversation that way, it isn't going to go well.
0: Yeah, that's not going to be pretty.
1: I'm sure you see this with a lot of couples. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, I talk down to my spouse because they're the bad one.
0: <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> but like you're saying, get in your head that, that, um, that and, and trust in this idea that, that everybody has infinite, absolute, equal value. Everyone's equal. No one's better than the other. I like that. Okay, so that's rule number one. What's the next rule?
1: Okay, number two, you must remember that life is a classroom, and every single thing that happens is here to teach us something. And, and I really believe that all of these lessons, every, every experience or situation that shows up is my lesson or my chance to practice being stronger, wiser, or more loving and and normally, in a feedback situation, you're, you have your teacher hat on, right? And mm-hmm. you're, you're about giving feedback to this other person. But we have to remember that you're a student, too. And this situation may be in your life to help you practice being stronger, wiser, and more loving. Mm. And before you give the feedback, you really need to step back and make sure that there's not a lesson for you in this. And, and maybe the lesson for you is actually about learning to give the feedback in a loving way and and really grow from this experience yourself.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, maybe my my reason for being in this predicament is to learn how to do it more effectively, not just to not just to teach people. Right. That's cool.
1: I, I yeah, it changes your perspective immediately when you rec- remember that you're the student too. So, my third one is to make sure that it's really your place to be the one to give this feedback. <laughs> yeah. Because I think a lot of us sort of overstep our bounds and take responsibility to correct somebody on their behavior when this is really none of our business.
0: Oh, it's so true.
1: So be honest with yourself. Is this really your role, or is there a part of you that just likes this being in judgment of other people's face because you feel powerful and maybe above others? And, and I think we really got to be honest with ourselves that there isn't times our subconscious ego, part of us likes that role.
0: Mm. Oh, don't you think? Yeah, because it puts us in a position of, you know, being the teacher instead of the learner, which is why that other step was so important before that. Make sure it really is your place to teach this lesson to this person. Oh, huge, it's huge. Right? Totally.
1: So, uh, my, my fourth step in making sure you're in the right space to give feedback the right way without offending somebody is actually to take a minute and check your values, your priorities a little bit. What I mean is that sometimes we put ideas or rules or, or etiquette before people and I've got a a really interesting free assessment on my website that people can go take that actually measures the way you value everything in this world. And one of the measurements that will actually show you at the subconscious level, if you tend to put ideas or rules before people, and that might mean at times that you, you really can feel very justified being mean or cruel to people, if you feel like they violated some rule or idea that you hold in, in great esteem. And really, if we get down to the truth of it, people are more important. Hmm. And so, yes, the rule is important and feedback may be important, but we've got to do it in a way that honors that the person is more important. Yeah. That makes
0: sense. Yeah. And in alignment to your highest values, right? If we're invoking how God would do it um, and, then that changes the game. It's not just about giving the feedback. It's about giving it in a loving, peaceful, kind way.
1: Absolutely. But but
0: still getting it across.
1: Yeah, because it it usually does serve the person who's going to be receiving this feedback to know what they're doing that may not really be working so they can improve themselves. It, It could absolutely serve them to get that feedback, but we've got to handle it the right way or they honestly won't be open to it. Right. So so my fifth hint is that you've got to understand that if you come straight at somebody with an attack, they're going to immediately have their walls go up and get defensive, and they will literally dig in to defend the bad behavior. They won't be open to looking at changing it. They'll now be absolutely focused on defending it because it's coming as an attack that feels like it's really about their value as a person. So they have to defend their behavior just like they would their value.
4: Hmm.
1: And actually a, a better technique is to spend some time first validating them. Make sure they know that their value is intact, that you honor and respect where they are and their right to be where they are. Make sure that they've got a little bit of safety with you first, where they don't feel like this is going to be an attack and then ask if they would ever be open to a little feedback, if it really comes from a place of love for them. Mm. And, and, and I call this a permission question. I, they're extremely powerful when you're going to give feedback to ask permission to do so first. And, and often with my kids, for example, I need to give this feedback, and, and I am going to give it whether they like it or not, but it doesn't necessarily have to be right this second and i will ask if they're in a place right now that they could handle a little constructive feedback from mom or do you need to kind of get in a better place before we talk about that
0: <laughs> so we
1: we may not do it in the moment but we are going to do it
0: right and and asking for the asking um for permission to do it we, i guess it it puts it more in their terms the ball is in their court which I would assume would increase the likelihood that they might live the feedback or the content you're giving.
1: Yeah. Besides, it really shows them that you, you respect and honor them, that you're willing to ask before giving it. Mm. And, and then one more last principle is we just need to ch- kind of check our ego for a minute and ask ourselves why we feel so drawn in this moment to, to give this. It, and make sure that it's coming from love for the person, not from this place of I really like to feel like I'm above you and I like to give feedback to people because it makes me feel bigger. We we need to make sure that it's really coming from love because as soon as you're face-to-face with someone, your energy gives you away. Mm-hmm. And if you don't honestly care about them, they're going to know. Yeah. And right and, and it then it
0: won't and then it won't the message won't be conveyed, right so I mean that they'll be then they have to deal with that energy along with the feedback you're giving
1: right and and guys are really it you really can give feedback from a space of love if you make sure you do a lot of validating up front, you make sure that you're you're seeing them as an equal peer. We can do this and we can have these tough conversations with people and not have it end up in, in a fight.
0: It, it, that, it's, it's possible is what you're saying. You can. Yeah. You can. And, and I think if, you, if they feel loved and understood before you're in any way going into the advising mode um, or even asking for permission, a lot of times you won't even have to ask for the permission. They will be asking you for the feedback. So what do you think? Do you think I'm crazy for doing it this way? I mean, if you really show someone you care and that they're safe with you, most people, it seems like, would kind of very naturally want some improvement.
1: Absolutely. You know, another thing that I often do before I give any, I ask for some.
4: Yeah, there you go.
1: And literally say, is there anything I could do better? Tell me how I could show up for you better. And, And let them literally stay open enough that you let them give you some really good feedback then when you ask permission to share to share with them or 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 give feedback the other way you will have earned it at a different level. Mm.
0: No, I love that. That's great. Well, Kim, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work and we will take your advice to heart how to give feedback without offending. Go check out the website claritypointcoaching.com. You can get more from um Kim Giles and her great team there at Clarity Point Coaching. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt
1: Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU
0: Radio. BYU Radio. He said, you know, a lot of our time management issues are emotional management issues, and then it just, and it dawned on me because of what I do um, outside of the show, a lot of our relationship issues are emotional management issues. So think about this. When you, think of your fight, the biggest argument you have with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, um, do you have... Do you lose control? Do you feel rejected, dejected? Do you get angry? Do you feel hurt beyond measure? Do you get sick of it? You're tired. You're exhausted. You're worn out. A lot of this, if you notice, they're all emotions and they're emotional reactions. They're emotional management um, issues. And as, as I've been working with couples, I had a couple come in the other day and basically the story is, Goes like this. She – they were signing up. They went on a vacation to Hawaii. And while they were there, part of the deal was they had to go listen to a time – like a timeshare meeting, right? Where a timeshare is where you go own one whatever, 40th of a condo in Hawaii and you put $20,000 down and then you get to go use it once every year or whatever. So a lot of these companies, you know, they've got great resorts all over the world. And then you can go and, and go to all of those great areas. So this couple is there just enjoying, basking in the beautiful glow of Hawaii. And while they're signing up, it's a couple. The husband had been pr- married before. So it's a second marriage for him. And, um, they, you know, they've had tension a long time Uh They've been married about two or three years, but it's been tense just because of, you know, trying to merge these new families and things. So as they're signing up for the timeshare, the husband is is entering their names uh, into like the register that they're there ready for their meeting. And he enters his name and then he puts his ex-wife's name instead of his new wife's name. And she, you know, was paying attention and noticed that. Okay, so what we call that in my business, that's the stimulus right there, right? That is now, that is the, this is the moment where the cage fight begins. And the minute the name was down, she saw it and she had an immediate emotional reaction to it, which was kind of like, what? Prepare to die. And he, he realized what he had done and he kind of froze he hadn't looked at her his wife yet but he immediately had his own reaction like ah oh, geez i'm dead i'm dead hope she didn't see that and then he crosses the name off and puts his wife's his second wife's name on okay but that moment created this situation that then eventually because we didn't manage our emotions in that moment it turned into about two or three days of not talking. One day of the man not even being allowed in the hotel room, so he slept on the beach like a vagrant. And ah uh, um, and they they fought and fought and fought, and then actually made an appointment to come see me while they were still on their vacation, and then they got in. So when I say relationship issues are emotional management issues. That's exactly what I mean. She had an emotional reaction to what was going on. He had a reaction to what was going on. And because nobody could control the emotion, manage their own emotion, or lower their partner's emotion, it became an emotional, you know, roller coaster and quite honestly, an emotional explosion. So I wanted to take you through some tools and some ideas to help us all recognize that in our relationships, it's if you don't manage your own emotion, you're setting yourself up because the pain, no matter what, is going to be yours. Well, yeah, but if I make it painful enough for him, but if you're making it painful for your partner, you're the one that's still going to pay, right? Because you have to maintain the pain in order to make it hurtful to another. So some rules, very basic rules. Rule number one, you are not your emotions because you feel angry doesn't mean you have to be angry. You can have a feeling as a human being and not write it, you know, to death. You're not a dog. You don't have to just, you you can think through this. You can process it. Why would a loving, decent, great, amazing guy write down his ex-wife's name? Well, because he's thinking about her. Maybe, maybe he's not. Maybe he's just not thinking at all. Maybe he's going by habit. Maybe it has something to do with the mere fact that for, I don't know, how many years, uh, eight, nine years, he was married to one woman and he's instead got two hours with or two years with this other woman. Well, yeah, but he should remember me more, right? Well, maybe, but you're not your emotion. You don't have to just react. You also are an agent that can choose and be what you need to be in this moment you remember emotions are there to teach you they're there to help you they're there to guide you the reason both people were freaking out was so that we would pay attention to the moment it we weren't we didn't the, the wife didn't need to freak out and the husband didn't need to fear because this was catastrophic It didn't need to be catastrophic. It was just, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Emotions are there to make sure we pay attention. They're there to make sure we take advantage of the right opportunity to handle something. And so we could have just used the emotion as a tool to help us. But what ended up happening to this couple is they ended up blowing up. They hurt themselves. They hurt each other. And in the end, it was probably because of their insecurities. We've got to learn that if you have an emotional response to something, even if it's justified, I get it. You should be – if you were in a car accident that a drunk driver caused and it hurt you, you should be emotional and you should be angry. I'm not saying don't be angry. I am saying however long you allow the emotion to manage you is how long you will suffer. So our goal would then be to find another emotion, and one of the things um, we talk about a lot on the show is you know, find your your best self. So that our lowest self will just take the emotion and run with it because we're afraid, we're hurt, we're worried, we're concerned. But our highest self um, will take us to another another level. This couple, when they finally got to my office, all I did eventually after talking to them is I showed them that they have many responses to this same situation – but I asked them very quite simply, um, if, if all of a sudden one of you were sick, if one of you had cancer, would, what would matter about this? And they're both like, well, nothing. Why wouldn't it matter if one, of you, if one of you really had cancer? And by the way, interestingly, one of them is sick. And it is scary. It's scary for them. The fear is the woman's afraid that she might she might be more easily replaceable if she's not already making an imprint on this guy that he can't get the name right but it was out of fear she responded and then his fear about how she responds created an issue but all of a sudden if we could get present and be our best self which we tend to be when someone's sick we tend to be our best self when we are more in our highest values and our highest principles things tend to work better for us so Think about it. Think about your relationships and don't just assume that your problems are your partner. They might very well just be your emotions and your emotional inability to manage those emotions. Emotional intelligence, as we wrap it up, is very basically just a few skills. Emotionally intelligent people recognize their own emotion and they know how to lower them and manage them and make them healthy. Emotionally intelligent people also know how to recognize the emotion of others and they know how to help those people lower their emotion. And emotionally intelligent people also know how to enroll people into their emotions and get people to buy into their good emotions. So if you are having relationship problems, can I suggest, especially if you can't, you seem like you can't get any progress going, don't, maybe stop trying to work on your partner and instead just start learning some emotional intelligence skills, managing your own feelings, trying to not be so fearful, trying to operate out of your highest self, your best self, that essence, that goodness that's inside of every one of us when we choose to be good. Anyway, emotional management 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. $201 billion, folks, for mental health uh, care. That's it's just crazy, crazy numbers. But there are some things, let me just suggest, that you can do to manage uh, or at least try to work work and coach yourself through some of your own uh, anxiety issues. We'll particularly today talk about anxiety, and I work with a lot of uh, just a lot of people. Um, So many times I'll have a mom and a dad bring their kids in to see me, and as we sit down, they'll start just talking about how their child hates school. They'll talk about the, you know, they have a hard time going out and socializing and doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and it worries the parents, right? And so you have a mom sitting there saying, look, aren't you going to go play? You really got to go play. The other kids are playing. Why don't you ever want to play? You're such a disappointment. And even if it's not like intentionally said that you're not cutting it, something's weird with you. Um, they already know that these kids know that. And what I find is a lot of times an anxious parent comes in and they're worried. And by the way, anxious about their child who probably has a little of their own anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or what have you. And so what I do, uh, one of the things I do in my organization is I help um, coach people through uh, their anxiety. And there's just, there's a lot of great research. And by the way, one of the number one ways to deal with your anxiety, 85% of it roughly, um, is simply your breathing, period. Usually, when you're anxious, your your body starts to, uh, because of the, the the hormones and what's happening, your breathing tends to be more shallow and fast. Right, so a shallow, fast, rapid breathing, which makes it so all of a sudden you're not getting a deep, full breath, which stresses you out. Yeah. I think I was talking about something else. But uh, like, you know, Lord Vader, for example. Lord Vader sometimes might have anxiety. Who knows? But one way we can deal with it is um, is breathing. Just a deep cleansing breath. A deep enough breath that your chest, your belly, everything just pops out when you take that breath. And if you take a couple of those, you'll immediately feel some of the tension, the anxiousness. It'll dissipate. One reason is because your body is getting the air it needs. Another way that you can do this is um, talk it out. One of the fastest ways to get your anxiety out of you is simply to share it with another person. But sometimes it stresses you to share it so you don't share it, right? And instead you go, maybe you pull away, you disappear, you, you maybe medicate. A lot of people just go medicate their anxieties and emotions. They just try to numb them. They'll drink, they'll, you know, do marijuana, but they're doing what they can to get rid of this anxiety and to relax. By the way, others are taking pharmaceutical pills that are coming from their doctor, right? One might be legal, one's illegal, but the, the point, I guess, behind it is we're still using some other method, a drug, to manage our emotion and our anxiety, It's needed. I get it for some. I get it. Um, I personally would suggest you go to the legal form because you're probably going to have less anxiety, right, than chasing down the illegal form. But everyone should try to find a person or be the person that someone that you care about can share and ask to. Uh, Think about it. Do you have somebody you can talk out your most difficult things in life? Because if you don't, then you're going to stuff them. And when you stuff them, it's going to probably make you more anxious and usually more or less likely that you're going to go act and do what you need to do. And then when anxious people don't go do what they need to do, they start to get depressed because they're not cutting it. They're not cutting it. Um, An activity that you might want to do is just find that one person you can share your deep feelings and concerns with, track them down, and even tell them, look, you're, my, you're kind of my go-to person on some of this, and I don't want to burden you. I don't want to overdo it, but could we just plan a time to meet every couple of weeks and talk, or however often you, that it works out for both of you. Another way to get some of the anxiety out is to write it out. One of my favorite activities with my clients is when they're feeling stressed, they've got a lot on their mind. If they've got stuff they've got to do, go write it down. Write your to-do list. Make a big, fat, nasty, gnarly to-do list. But some of the things aren't part of a to-do list. It's just feelings you're feeling. You're feeling overwhelmed. Your thoughts are swirling around in your mind. And what I'd suggest to my clients that they do is they write what they're feeling. Whatever they're thinking, they write it out. Like, holy cow, this job's driving me crazy. If I have one more person do this, I'm going to go crazy. Write your feelings out. And then what I ask them to do is write another line as they're writing, instead of writing on a new line every time, write on on the same line over the same sentence you wrote earlier. And then on the third time, go do it a third time on the same line. So you're going to write a sentence three times on the same line. And what's cool about it is it gets all the ideas out, the thoughts out, it gets the energy out, the emotion out, without ever, um, without making it readable. So you can pretty much say whatever you need to say. It also releases the energy because it it takes energy to write. So by the time you're done getting that energy out, it's out of you. You're tired. You're exhausted. It's powerful. Another tool, think it out. You can sometimes think your anxieties away by simply, you know, being realistic and gathering data. Instead of just automatically taking the negative thoughts of the fears of the future and this pressurized world, Start using, you know, a part of your brain to actually evaluate your thinking. Notice your thoughts. Go through what you're thinking in your head. Okay, so that's a negative thought. What's another way to look for this? Another way to think it out is to look for more evidence. Usually when you talk to somebody that's anxious, they don't have all the evidence of what's going on because they've only collected the fearful evidence. But what I would always ask my son who was suffering with this, I'd say, Can you give me some examples of where you're doing really well at school? And amazingly, there was an abundance of answers. And it starts to let his cognitive thinking override some of his emotion. Another tool that I think is super powerful is to turn your anxiety out. A lot of anxiety, I believe, is just we're so self-focused because, you know, we're collapsing in on ourselves. And what we might want to try to do is find a way to serve our way out of this anxiety. Get out of yourself and go start offering yourself your tools, your resources, your help, your guidance. Offer to serve others. And as you offer to serve others, you get that great happy neurotransmitter. Dopamine starts to make you feel good. Anyway, folks, it's a tough game. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying there are other answers. There's four right there. I got many, many more, and uh, they're yours, and they're free. Start there, or get online and start researching it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Principal Ed Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off has instilled in many of us a deep dislike for anyone in academia regardless of our disdain. Should we continue to write off academics today? Is academia still relevant in our society today? Um, According to uh, some writings by our next guest, uh, an interesting statistic came up. 87% of scientists think that climate change is mostly due to human activity, and yet only 50% of the public agree. And he gave over and over many, many examples of where, you know, the academics are saying one thing, but the public are all saying another thing. So there's a divide. There's a divide going on power and influence of academics. It's dropping. And here to speak with us today is uh, Dr. Andy J. Hoffman, a professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of Michigan. And he, he wrote a wonderful article in the theconversation.com. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, thank you again so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. This um in fact how we found you I think is uh is a very important method that might be one of the solutions of of your argument here. We and I I see it personally uh, for, on this radio show. Because I, being on a campus, I hear a lot of the great academic research being done, but I also see that a lot of the academics aren't very good at getting their messages out. Um, What is going on? Why is there such a divide in people following, trusting, believing in the academics?
3: Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Um, The one that I wanted to focus on in this particular article was the extent to which academics don't see it as their job hmm. to get their information out. Uh, all our rewards point us towards publishing in the top academic journals. Uh, but let's face it, the average public and certainly politicians don't read those journals. And so so true. the information is brought to the public and to the political process. Uh, it will not have an impact.
0: Well, and um, I've, I, I when I got my doctorate, um, the idea of worrying more, because my idea was we need to get these messages out, and I had a strong background in communications, in journalism, in broadcasting, I'm like, why aren't academics doing it? And it's exactly what you said, there is a belief in a way that it's kind of beneath them. Their job is mm-hmm. to stir the conversation within within the academia, within that world, instead of outside of the world. Sure. I mean, we can look at both the formal and the informal rewards.
3: And in the formal rewards, um, we do promotion and tenure process, we do annual reviews, and it really focuses on the level of research in the academic journals and citation counts. And the informal rewards also matter. Uh, It's referred to by many as the Carl Sagan effect. That mm. um, Carl Sagan was mocked by many scientists as being a popularizer and a hack, and it was right. actually denied admission to the National Academies. And that bias still exists. There are people within the academy that will look at those who bring information to the generalize, uh, general public as, as as a hack and a popularizer, and therefore not as serious a scientist.
0: Mm. And why on earth couldn't
3: it be both? That's a great question and one uh, I and many others are starting to ask, and I think there are a number of real threats at the door that are compelling the question. Um, Certainly social media is changing what we do. We can't ignore that. So you write your paper for the academic journals, but someone else produces something using less than rigorous methods and produces it and puts it on social media, they win, we lose. There is growing antagonism towards the academy because they don't understand what we do. We can see that most visibly in state legislatures, for example, in Mm. Wisconsin and North Carolina, cutting funding. And I also, it's very interesting, social media is changing how people think about science and the access to it and their own perceptions of their own authority. Um, Jenny McCarthy has been able to get women or parents not to vaccinate their children for fear of autism, even though medical science says that connection is right not there. And she boasts that she went to the University of Google. Oh, and I've talked to many medical doctors who say it, it's starting to get really frustrating because they have they bring their medical experience to bear. They come up with a recommendation and then the the the, the patient will actually say, well, I saw an ad on TV and so I want to go this other way. And and it's just it's it's really an alarming situation, especially when you add on top of that, that, you know, surveys show that that many, if not most Americans do not understand science or the scientific process. Yet You ask them if they feel they have a solid understanding
0: of climate change or GMOs. (laughs) And they say they do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we watch Rachel Ray. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's I guess there's this there is such a change in the world. Um, and maybe the pop culture and the pop media and regular kind of forms of media are able to get into the heads and the hearts of the people. Is it I mean, I, I, so that creates the divide. Is it academics and, and is it the academy's job to worry about its own marketing or yeah, is like, it or is just the purity of, of the, the, the uh, scientific methodology all that they should worry about? Well, I think that's the
3: question to answer is, is the role of the university in society shifting? Um, has it already shifted and perhaps drifted too far away from empirical relevance, and does it have to pivot back? And that would be my position. And I think it's a, a worthy debate to be had, because in in truth, the conversation of the role of science in the academy and particular government funding of science has been around since World War II. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, uh, my feeling and that of many, is that we've swung too far, and our work is focused on a small number of our academic peers with very little interest or regard in bringing it to the general public. Now I also want to say that I, I don't think every academic needs to do this. I don't think every right. academic should do it. But we should broaden the portfolio of what it means to be a professor. So that some who are more in the upstream end of doing very, very basic research, you stay there, you do your thing. But others who want to drift more towards the directions of making scientific information and making it accessible to the public and making it of value to the um The general public, that's what it's all about. And if I may, I'd like to read to you something from the Mayo Clinic. The Mayo Clinic did something very interesting. Just recently, they announced that they're going to use um, social media in their promotion and tenure process. Oh wow! And that's a very interesting development. And that's what I was trying to do in this article as well, is just say, if you look closely, there are some changes. This conversation has been engaged, and that encourages me. But the the closing of their argument, and I'm quoting from the Mayo Clinic, it says, the moral and societal duty of an academic health care provider, and you could insert in there just academic, is to advance science, improve the care of his or her patients, and share knowledge. A very important part of this role requires physicians to participate in public debate, responsibly influence opinion, and help our patients navigate the complexities of health care. As clinician educators, our job is not to create knowledge obscura, trapped in ivory towers, and only accessible to the enlightened. The knowledge we create and manage needs to impact our communities. And Mm. I think that that is a really important point. Jane Lubchenco, former head of NOAA, professor at Oregon State, has been pushing the idea of science as social contract. We have an obligation to society given our position
0: (laughs) To bring that information to the public, that is great. That's a wonderful um, citation. It's, I I guess, that gets to the point that to be a good academic, to be a good researcher, doesn't mean you're always a great communicator. But it's not like a department couldn't also bring on an academic that's a great communicator. And and, about the portfolio of faculty, not just each faculty. Exactly. That's, Mm -hmm. I mean, and you really do. You want you want the top researchers researching, but somebody (laughs) needs to be communicating their message. Is it more? Could you have a support team? Could you could you create more of a support team around every department that is more responsible for the communication?
3: Sure. Some universities are hiring science communicators. So you write a paper, and they'll help write a press release. Hmm. or get it out there. And then also the medium that you found me through. It's called The Conversation. Right. And there are others. The Monkey Cage is another one. And these are domains where academics can write essays about their work and bypass the mainstream press. And interestingly, some of the mainstream press, it's free access. You can repost them anywhere and some mainstream News sources are going to the conversation and using those for news stories. I've had a couple of posts show up in U.S. News Report or mm-hmm. Time Magazine and so forth. And so that, that the, the whole domain of information in this country is shifting. Academia is caught up in it. It also it has implications for the role of the
0: journalist. Yes, I, and we see it on – I mean, we're at BYU campus um, – but we have you know a national show on a on a large platform and yet sometimes drawing an academic like a professor into the show it's easier to get sometimes people off of the conversation to come mm-hmm. talk about their stuff because they're already into communicating it than it is to get somebody out of a department at BYU to come over and talk about it
3: yeah cuz i think it it requires first um An an interest in doing it. Right. Many don't. Um, If you do read the comments that follow that article, some are quite interesting. And some of them are from people who say, you know, I don't trust scientists. I don't want to hear from scientists. And that, that sentiment is out there. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, but then there's also some from scientists who say, I don't want to do this, and, and in, a, in a not terribly nice way. And I'll read you one comment. Yeah, I says, do. How do you explain rhyme and tensor to someone who has never mastered elementary algebra? <laughs> this is clearly a case of unable as opposed to unwilling. I would love to explain such things, but I cannot. I cannot teach my pet hamster differential equations either. Oh, jeez I, I, I worry about that kind of arrogance. Yeah. Um, Certainly, there are some domains that, yes, it may be a high-level science, but can you communicate the implications? Right. For people's lives, um, uh, I, I often challenge my doctoral students, um, can you explain your dissertation to your mother? Can you, can you take the jargon out of it and explain it? And, and if you can't, I would, I, would, I would question whether you fully understand what you're, what you're working on. Ugh. I don't want to knock this guy in particular, right? but I do think the idea of comparing the general public to a hamster <laughs> no. and saying that I can't explain my research to him it, it's dangerous to the enterprise. Mm. Um, it creates resentment. Among many within the public who feel that they 've been condescended or even insulted by people in science yeah, and I think that that that's dangerous uh, The cover story in National Geographic this past
0: fall was the war on science and and it's in part um, our own fault and yeah and again when the when the check is written by the people, you may not want to slap that hand.
3: Right. This this issue is is more pronounced for public universities and even more pronounced for land-grant universities whose mm. mission
0: is to educate the public. Mm. Interesting stuff. Let's take a break. We're again speaking with Andy uh, Andrew, Coff, uh, Andrew Hoffman, who is a professor um, and uh, a wonderful writer, in fact, wrote a great article, Why Academics Are Losing Relevance in Society and How to Stop It. He, again, is a professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of Michigan and uses his research um, and, and focus to, uh, to help, I think, in this case, all of us recognize the importance of uh, the synergy between our professors, our academics in the world, and um, the people that, that uh, really need to know what they're learning and, and, and why their roles are so important. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, academics dedicate their lives to making our lives better, supposedly, right? But uh, apparently we don't seem to care or we don't get the message. We don't read what they publish. We don't believe that, you know, in vaccinations to the degree that we might need to. We don't believe in the safety of of, um, GMO-produced foods. Um, Anyway, what do you think? Do, Do you think in the end... Any of this matters. Again, earlier we were talking about a, a Pew Research uh Study that said 87% of scientists accept natural selection plays a role in evolution, but only 32% of the public agree. 88% of scientists think that genetically modified foods are safe to eat, but only 37% of the public agree. 87% of scientists believe that climate change is mostly due to human activity, and only 50% of the public agrees. And then every state has a public university, and yet none of us listen to, understand, or agree with um, a lot of what's going on in these universities, that divide is, uh, is problematic in my eyes. It's also um, the, the, the topic of a wonderful article we found in the conversation, Why Academics Are Losing Relevance in Society and How to Stop It, and joining us to talk about his article, Dr. Andy J. Hoffman, who is a professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of, uh, of Michigan. Andy Hoffman, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Matt. I, I really think this is important um, as a topic because it's it also might even – it shows a little bit of the divide of um, – it's almost institutional. It's kind of those that are in their ivory tower. It's kind of middle America versus, uh, I don't know, uh, the coasts. Um, it, what's going on when it comes to – is it is it millennials is it this new generation that's happening or is it is it kind of an overall uh issue that we're facing where we just don't trust the academic world
3: well i think we're we're in a phase right now where people are distrusting the institutions of society writ large and academia is one of them um, but i also i think that um whenever you know the distrust of science is not across the board um, certain issues um, become caught up in what we might call the culture wars. Other issues do not. Yeah. And uh, particularly issues that challenge people's beliefs or their behavior, uh, it's meant with resistance. And that's, that's a natural thing. If I came out with some kind of conclusion that says you have to change how you live your life, then you're naturally going to be hesitant, if not resistant. And so it's, it's, it's the job to figure out how to communicate science better. And there's a lot of activity in that area that, that again, in this, in this piece, I was trying to say, there are changes afoot. And so there are centers growing around the country on the topic of science communication. And the, the National Academies, the AAAS, have been starting to focus on this, the Sloan Foundation. Um, there's a lot of activity to start to say, okay, we, we need to become better communicators of science to the public.
0: And, and that gives me hope. And incentivizing it, right? Like, I mean, yeah. tenure, is, is this a, is this a? Uh, could this be a construct or a reality or a realization of what tenure creates?
3: It is. And then, you know, the reward system dictates the behavior, and it can become so implanted that even when someone becomes a full professor, and that review shouldn't matter anymore, and the whole purpose of full professor, or even just tenure, was to grant a professor the freedom to do things that aren't necessarily down the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so uh, to my mind, that's what should happen when we become um, at least tenured and if not full, for sure. Um, so how do we change the culture yeah. of the university and uh, the first place to start? is the reward system and, and I do see some changes. Um, typically at the end of every year, I and all my colleagues across the country, across the world, we do an annual report and we have to show what we did for the year in research, teaching and service. And it's usually research for me, at least my school, and most you know, research-oriented schools, it's research first and then teaching a service. The Ross School of Business where I teach actually added a fourth category called practice and how are you impacting the world mm. of practice. And for a school of business, that would be the business world. For a school of policy, that would be government. And you go through the boards. And that is adding a new dimension to the conversation.
0: Is, then, but but, but in, like in your school, a research institution, research would be much more heavily weighted than service, for example.
3: Yes. And service, but service has meant service to the academic community. So I sit on okay. committees uh, and okay. things like that. That's not really service outside the university. It's service to our professional societies
0: and things like that. Do, do you ever see a, a sense in the future that even at a research institution, that, like if, if they were going to adopt your practice, um, where they, all, they also start including practice into the tenure review, do you see a day where practice could equal research?
3: That's a great question, and uh, um, I, I w- uh, this is my editorial opinion. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would say that day is, is far off. At okay. the end of the day, we are, our primary job is to create research and teach our students. Hmm and then bringing it to the public. I and mean, we have 24 hours in a day. Right, and right, so there's a limited ability to do this, but schools are bringing in others to help. But I would also add that I see a, a shift in the younger generation coming into academia that want to make a difference in the real world. And the question then becomes, will academia spit them out, or will they change academia? And mm. I'm hopeful it's the latter that will happen, in part because I see movement across the university, conversations among university presidents, deans, journal editors, hmm. professors. Um, I, organized, I helped organize a conference here at the University of Michigan in May um, 2015 on academic engagement in public and political discourse and asking, is there a problem and, and what should we do about it? The opening panel was for university presidents, um, Michigan, Virginia, Dartmouth, and Arizona State. Oh, wow. That tells me that this is an issue that is reaching the highest levels of academia and questions are being asked. And, and um, Mark Schlissel, the president of the University of Michigan, had some very thoughtful things about us becoming perhaps a bit too careerist and staying inside our comfort zones and saying that if we just become focused on the letters after our names and the accolades we have, then, quote, unquote, the willingness of society to
0: support us will decrease. hmm uh-huh. Um, What about – I mean I look at it too. That So the researcher is always trying to get published. They're always trying to get into the academic journals. But these academic journals in a weird way also seem to have – I mean I guess they are – maybe they don't have a marketable ability. But why couldn't they? Why couldn't some of the great academic journals that people are writing in also create a blog or something that is more easily accessible to the rest of the public? Some of them
3: are starting to do that. Um, that is starting to happen, and that's where social media is changing things. Um, I would add that you know it, it's not easy for an academic to take uh, some high-level sure. academic research right. and 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 translate it and, and even write it in an accessible way. Uh, it's 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 akin to being multilingual. Right. And can you speak English and can you speak French? It's the same as saying can you speak the academic speak that has extreme precision, every word matters in an academic paper, and then bring it to the real world and understand the differing conceptions of, for example, uncertainty. Mm. In a scientific sense, it's its variance around the mean, and the general public it means, well, maybe you just don't know. Exactly. And these kinds of things are challenging. It's very challenging. And then write a narrative that is accessible. I can read you even from some of my own papers where you'd, you'd look up and say, what did you just write? And then <laughs> have to di- dissect it.
0: Well, we do that all the time because we'll have guests. On and then I, I'll try to like, I'll try to insinuate that there was a causal effect, and they'll have to clarify there wasn't a causal effect. There was, and, and then they have to. <laughs> so it's, it's just it is. It's a completely different language, and and you know I don't know that it needs to get um, to that level. What I found just looking at like the the, the examples you've talked about with the conversation um, and other and other magazines or or, uh, or sources. It's The people that are going there are, are, are much more conversant anyway. They seem to already have the gift and the ability. A lot of the professors we talked to already have their own blog in order to reach the public and their students. And so it's kind of like natural selection again, right? Those that are more naturally able to do it are drawn to it, and those that aren't stay in the lab. Yeah, but I would add one
3: more dimension if we can just get all these yeah. on the table. You know, so now what these places are doing is using the powers of social media to take information from the academy straight to the public, and, and, I, and I think that's great. And then we have the comments section, which mm. ideally would be a place for civil discourse, yeah. and very often it is not. Right. And you saw Na- National Public Radio's announcement recently to eliminate the comments section. What was amazing about that is if you look at the data, I mean it's a very small number of people that are commenting right, and they're commenting right. a lot. Yeah. And so anytime I have a post related to climate change, I can tell you what's going to happen in the comments section. Someone writes in and says climate change is a hoax. Someone mm-hmm. writes No it's not. Yes it is. No and not. You're an idiot, no you're an idiot. And down <laughs> it goes. Exactly. And that is not helpful. To educating the public so I don't know what we do no. about that but it's a brave new world we have to figure out social media
0: well and the comment section I think on at, at every newspaper on every I mean that is that has been the age-old issue is because it is it's the it's the 1% that really dirty the pool yeah. so we then and, pull so, it.
3: and you, you can you can moderate it but that requires time and money right exactly and, and that's, that's very very hard
0: do, um where do we go from here so I guess we, we want to keep pushing uh, you know, so we have some incentives, so there are incentives to be, a, you know, almost a practitioner versus just the researcher um, or a scholar. What are some other ways that we can incentivize it, or how can I incentivize it at my own university just locally? Well, begin the conversation, and um,
3: I think there are a series of questions. We, we, it's, I would I would argue that we need to create sort of a handbook. Um, A handbook for professors on how to work engagement into their career safely, and a handbook for administrators on how to create an environment where it's safe to do this and even rewarded to do this. Hmm. And we're really at square one. I mean, what is public engagement? I mean, should I be on this show? Yeah, I think so. Should I be on Rush Limbaugh? Should I be on Bill Maher? Right, Um, right. I don't know. I I, I, I don't know. But it's getting into infotainment. Is that really where we should be? And I have colleagues who say, absolutely. Anywhere you can reach the public, do it. Right. Then, you know, what is the role of the academic? And um, Roger Pilka Jr. has written a very interesting book, a very provocative book called um, The Honest Broker. And to his mind, the academic should take all the information and just put it out there and let let the chips fall where they may, where some scientists thinks, no, you should narrow it and to only put out what are, we think is the, the pertinent
0: information and, mm-hmm. and the provocative position. Well, then, the, I mean, the pseudo-academics are going to hack your stuff up anyway. Exactly. It's so tough. You know, and the, that's another part of
3: it is, is teaching others. You know, um, uh, acad- engagement is messy. Yeah. You cannot control your message. Um, and that is something you're going to have to accept. Mm-hmm. And some scientists won't do this unless the reporter will publish their abstract verbatim, which ain't going to happen. Uh, engagement can be hostile. I have an inbox for hate mail because I do it on climate change. Oh, that's true. I also think engagement can be rewarding, and this is where the young people are coming in and really want to make a difference in the real world. And I also think it can prove your research, but it has to change your publication strategy. The typical mode is I spend all this time, I produce this paper. Once it's published, I put a line on my resume and I move on. I may give an academic talk or two. But this thinking says, no, go on BYU radio, write a blog in the conversation, get the information out there make it accessible. And that takes time and it takes time away from the next academic paper.
0: Oh, it does. And, well, we, and we appreciate, because you're walking your talk. I mean, this is, and you've already got one of the hottest, you know, debated issues on earth. And yet, if we could just get to the real data, we, we might not have to debate it. But mm-hmm. oh. well, we appreciate you, uh, Andy Hoffman. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work there at uh, University of Michigan. Um, wow. It's, 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 a, it's a very important thing. It is really one of the reasons I wanted to do this show, because I've seen the best research that exists about marriage and family, and no one knows about it. No one knows about it, because these academics can't get the message out. They, don't, they can't communicate it. And then you see guys like Andy Hoffman that are writing and trying to create a dialogue and a discourse about it. But you can also predict the way academics moves. It'll take 30 years. Or just a lot of really innovative young professors to, to take this thing on. Ah, fun stuff. Helping you see the good in the world. It's there. You just got to be looking for it. We'll be right back.
2: I'm ready to go in, Coach.
0: Just give me a chance.
2: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's
0: Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Now, so think about uh, our last discussion with uh, Dr. Hoffman. Again, you see the duality, right? So it's almost like you can't be smart and informed um, and still have um, a discussion. So the academics, it's, they've made it an, an either or proposition. Either you're an academic researcher, legit viable researcher, or you're popularizing the science. You can't be both. And yet, um, some of the movements I've seen and I follow, so I would probably be a a pop scientist because I'm not doing any research, but I talk to a lot of those that do, and I read thoroughly their writings, and it's amazing what information is out there. Uh, Like I've said a million times on the show, I believe the cure of cancer exists, and I believe it's in five laboratories, but these labs are not incentivized to talk to each other. And because they're not, they're actually disincentivized to share information because somebody's got to come up with the cure, and then they can make the billions of dollars. But if we could incentivize talk and dialogue, there's something really powerful there. One of the areas where I did most of my research um, in graduate school was in the area of dialogue theory, which was communication theory, and it actually was created by a guy named David Bohm. And David Bohm just so happened to be a, uh, an academic who really was the, the heir, hand-picked heir to, um, to Albert Einstein – he was supposed to take albert's chair and but david bohm is most known for not replacing einstein he was he was most known for creating a communication theory because he realized sitting in a room full of physicists that none of these people could talk to each other and we're not going to solve the problems of the world if we can't talk So somehow we need to, just like we do with Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, we need to somehow bridge academia and the general public. It's in the and, folks. We call that the space between. It's always going to be in bridging the space between people. That is the goal of this show. Bridge the space between people. We'll take a break. That's hour number one. We'll come back next hour. More fun, more ideas right here on The Matt Townsend Show.